Hey, everybody, and welcome to Views on View. I'm Ben Hong, Senior Front-End Engineer on GitLab. And today on our panel, we have Eric Hanschett, full-stack developer and author of Vue.js in Action. Hello, everybody. And today for our guest, we have Nosa Obaseki. Nosa, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Nosa, Front-End Dev at Flutterwave. Hi. <laughs> All right, fantastic. Hey, folks, I just want to let you know quickly about Netlify. Netlify is a really cool system for hosting what are traditionally known as static sites. However, the real benefit that I've been finding is that I don't have to mess with a back end. I can just set things up. I build the website out. I've been using a system called 11DJS, and you just deploy it. And then anything that you have that you want to do, you can do on the front end. So if you want to pull in some kind of database with Firebase or something else, if you want to collect form data, Netlify provides all kinds of services that make it easy to do all that stuff. If you're trying to do serverless, they have a really, really neat serverless setup that will allow you to deploy your websites without having to deploy a backend and it'll do some of the work for you. I just, I just love it. So if you're looking for a way that you can actually deploy a website that only has front-end technology in it, gives you all the tools that you typically need for the back-end without having to actually program the back-end, then give them a try. Go check them out at Netlify.com. Well, so Nosa, since obviously this is your first time on the podcast, why don't we get started with, how did you get started with Vue? It was just a fun project I was working on. And I wanted to try something new, um, use like a new framework, and I decided to pick Vue. Luckily, the version 2 just came out then, so it was just yeah. like a fun thing to play with. Yeah. Yeah, did you have any experience with any frameworks before that, or was Vue your first one? Vue was actually my first one. Wow. Yeah, so I, <laughs> I used to be like a UI developer before, and then I decided to transition into the other parts. So I needed to pick up a framework that could do something, and mm-hmm. uh, I was like, hey, um, so between React, Vue, which was the first day, and I was like, oh, let me try Vue out. And then I tried it, and then I never went back. Yeah, it's, I'm glad to hear that you're one of the few developers that started with Vue. Actually, it's growing more and more. People are starting with Vue as their first framework. It's a great framework to start out with. It's a good transition after you've kind of learned the basics of HTML, CSS. I've talked to so many people that have come from React to Vue or from Angular to Vue, but it's glad to, to hear that you started off with with, with uh, Vue. How was that transition, trying to learn it? I mean, what kind of resources did you use? How, how did that go? <laughs> so um, it was mostly the docs. So because like a lot of, um, I had like a bunch of issues that I was having when I started initially, but the docs really helped out. Most of the issues was mainly there wasn't like a, particular structure that you have to follow you could just do it whatever direction you feel like so which was like a big red for me i was always used to having like a structure to just work with so you're coming to something there's already like a predefined part that you could go at it but um view kind of provided that flexibility to use whatever direction you want so um most of the basic only two issues i was having when I was like trying to look for solutions to it, I was seeing all um, version one. And <laughs> because I said version two just came out like a week when I started. So I just felt like there was no point doing version one. Let's just go to version two. So yeah, I was just stuck with just documentation. But then the documentation was really good and helpful. So yeah. Yeah, that's really uh, great to hear just because, um, you know, with a lot of, I think, open source projects, most people, they rely on like Stack Overflow or some other custom course. Um, for this and view really their docs. Um, I mean, Chris Fritz and, and the team have just done a phenomenal job with it. I was at 
Eric, Eric, I don't actually, I don't know your story with you. Did, did you also start with the docs or how did you get involved with it? Yeah, I, d- I definitely started with the docs, but I'm one of those guys too that I'll just find information from every, everywhere and probably like you, Ben. You know, I was looking at the official documentation a lot. I bought some Udemy courses. When I started off with, I was look, looking up Google or, or Googling just different view blog articles, going to view forums, just everything I could to, to soak it up and soak it in. And, and I concur, definitely the official documentation is one of the best out there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was surprising, I think, the first time where I was just like trying to look for things that I was trying to learn how to do. And it was pointing me at the docs and I was so used to Stack Overflow and <laughs> other things in order to answer questions. You know, I'm going to go on a limb here. And I, I don't know, I'm probably different than some of the viewers or listeners that are listening today, but I don't use Stack Overflow as much as I used to. Like at the beginning of my career, I was like Stack Overflow guy, everything. But the last few years, like I've like cut down all the time because a lot of times I'm looking for a specific issue. A lot of times I find it on GitHub. Like I'll find a GitHub issue that someone opened up on the official repository and I'm like, oh, that's what's happening. That This is actually either a bug or sometimes those show up on, on higher in Google than Stack Overflow questions nowadays. Yeah, that, that's a fantastic point. I didn't even think about that, but I'm pretty sure my use of Stack Overflow has trended down as well. What about you, Nosa? How do you usually debug things? I mostly use whatever I find. <laughs> Just go on Google and look for the problem. If it's something you can find in Stack Overflow, whatever comes like the top five or six lists on Google is mostly where I find what I need to do. So I just look around, look around. Um, if that isn't working out, I probably hit up someone to, hey, I'm having this issue. Have you ever run into it before? That kind of thing. Yeah, and I think that's that's perfect. That's how most people do it. That's what I do too. You know, we just Google something. I think that they said like half of web development sometimes is just Googling until you get to a certain level and then everything starts clicking and then you only have to Google really the hard problems that are popping up. So what what was the next steps after you started learning Vue and you were Googling around and, and you were looking at the official documentation? Did you try to build a project to help you learn it or did you use that to help get your to get a job or what happened? It was actually a project. So I used to freelance a lot. So there was this job that I needed to do and I also wanted to like learn a framework and I was like, oh, perfect example of just picking up the framework. So I just decided to use the framework to kind of get things started. It was probably a bad choice, but <laughs> in the end, I was able to figure out a lot of stuff. So as much as the requirement of the project was what made me figure my way around, around view. Why do you think it was a bad choice at the beginning? Do you think it was just simple enough to use without a framework, the project you were creating? So I actually felt it was simple to like pick up because I just started with it but at the point in time like had like a whole bunch of issues because turns out the project was actually very complex and I probably needed like extra hands to it and I just went at first with it with like view and I was just trying to figure out my way and majority of the time I was drowning but um, like I said (laughs) I figured it out at the end so yeah that's why I felt like it was a bad choice I should have probably like um, asked someone or something. But then again, <laughs> if you look at it from another point of view. Hey, nice pun. <laughs> <laughs> it, kind, it kind of like what kind of worked. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, um, my experience first project with Vue was actually similar to you, Nosa. I was kind of like, 
I really want to work with a framework and there's this project. So I'm just going to try this. I'm just going to do it. And um, there's certainly something to be said about trial by fire. I definitely, looking back at the code base, a lot of things I could have done a lot better. But you know, I think some of this is making progress. Um, and I think that's what Vue really helps you do is um, getting to a certain point and then can always refactor and improve it going forward. True, true. So as you were going through and picking up Vue, was there anything that you found that was difficult? Like maybe concepts that you found hard to sort of use at first? So what I found out majorly was um, structuring. So then we did not have um, the Vue CLI then. So it was pretty much just bringing things in. And um, the backend was based on Laravel then. So it was just like Laravel projects and then the view was on top of it. So it was kind of hard to figure out a structure in which you should like use because it was my first framework. I there wasn't like a I needed like an opinion of how to go about it, but there wasn't any. So I was just left to like figure it out and structure it the way I felt like I needed to structure it. So that was like the first part. Second part was um state management, which <laughs> <laughs> at, at like the long run I needed to bring in Vuex I'm not exactly sure if Vuex was dead then I think it was still like in beta phase when version 2 came out not exactly sure but I did know about Vuex so I was doing the things that you do without Vuex which is sending data through props and <laughs> so it was, yeah. it was very messy <laughs> it was very messy did you yeah. play around with the uh, event bus at all? Yeah, I did that. Create like a general bus and then we pass all the data through. <laughs> yeah, I remember on my first project, I thought I was so smart because I was like, ooh, I'll use an event bus and then I don't need Vuex. And oh, that was such a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, Eric, what was your experience with state management at the time? Yeah, definitely. Just I yeah, I went through the path of like, we should always use Vuex. So, um, and so I was just trying to like, ah, I just put this in everything. And obviously... As you guys both know, you know, it's not a tool that you should use all the time. And it made for some interesting learning, especially at the beginning. I'm like, okay, now how do I do this set mapper? I mean, how do I, there's a lot of looking <laughs> up and trying to kind of put it all together. No, so I have a question. What, what do you think could have been done better through the documentation and things like that, that could have guided you better when learning some of these things like Vuex or when not to use Vuex and when to use Vuex and when to use state management? Do you think there could have been better documentation or, or something that could have been different or is it just naturally part of your learning process? I think it's naturally part of your learning process. Okay. But I don't see any better way directly now that could have been better at that time because you're new to it and you're just trying to figure your way, th- your way out. So you would still kind of fall into that for why you should use Vuex or not. I'm personally on the opinion that you should just bring it in from the start. <laughs> yeah, if your app is going to scale at all, you should probably use it. Yeah, because yeah, um, most of the time you don't control the requirements um, and most projects end up becoming bigger than you anticipate. And then it's always kind of hard dragging Vuex in at the last minute than if you actually just started with it. So yeah. That's a good point, yeah. That, that's probably a good rule of thumb. If you're just maybe a really small project, don't bring it in. But if you think it's going to scale at all, like Ben said, probably a good idea. Just throw it in there. I don't think it's going to add too much to the bundle size and complexity. And really, Vuex compared to like 
coming from the React world and doing like a Redux store or, or Angular world, NGRX, I think it's easier, in my opinion, to work with. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Nosa, did you have issues with sort of understanding like actions versus mutations? Like, was that like difficult for you to sort of start mapping correctly? Yes. Conceptually? For most part, I didn't see a need of actions or why you needed to use actions. I just felt like you could do everything in mutations. But then I learned that the hard way <laughs> when I was trying to, <laughs> to like debug something off mutations and like uh, it just became a mess. And <laughs> I discovered that, yes, this is what actions was there for. And this is why it needs, you need to use actions instead of mutations to do your like fixing things. <laughs> How was it for you, like uh, coming from like other frameworks to grok the mutation actions? Was that fairly straightforward for you too? Yeah, when I was reading it, yeah, I did come pretty straightforward. Actually, I have more of a background in Ember JS. Believe it or not, people uh, still use that. Yeah, very popular. And then and then and then some Angular, but yeah, it it just took a little bit of time to just kind of wrap my head of like when to use one and when to use the other. And once it kind of all clicked, it wasn't too big of a deal. What do you think? Yeah, I think. So for me, when I came, by the time I got into Vuex, it was one of those like always use actions, never directly call a mutation. So that's just like the rule I went by, even though some of my actions basically were the mutations because the action was just to call the mutation. It wasn't anything weird, asynchronous or logic wise. But I mean, I think have the two of you heard about how I think Vue three they're hoping to actually fuse the two together. So oh, I'm hoping that'll make make things even easier for people using Vuex in the future because I think they found I think they found a way to intelligently figure out when they needed to do what without the user like the developer defining it. So I think I mean isn't it at the point now too when you write your Vuex you don't I can't remember if you do you don't even get warnings you could like directly mutate the state without any warnings so it's like it lets you shoot yourself in your foot if you really want to. <laughs> Either they're going to leverage that or find some way around that, but they're going to try to help people just make it simpler to make all their changes without figuring out whether to do actions or mutations and have to jump through those hoops. So that should be exciting for Vue 3. Have you looked at Vue 3 yet, Nosa, at all, or the Function API or anything? Yes, let's talk about Um, the Function API. (laughs) (laughs) Did you guys already talk about that last time, Ben? So we talked about it a little bit. Uh, This is, I think it was the week right before, like, the whole debacle of Reddit and Hacker News. So, yes, Nosa, back to you. Function API. Uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> I kind of have like a mixed feelings towards it, but uh-huh. I honestly don't know. <laughs> well, well let's, let's unpack that a little bit. So, what are you feeling? Again, it's just obviously we, we have opinions and it's still an RFC. So, yeah, t- tell us a little bit more about what, what your mixed feelings are. So, I, I did go through it. And I felt like it was going to work, but I felt also felt like it was just going to make things more complex. So everybody has like a a way right now of how Vue works, and that structure applies across, even if you're trying to use like a different style or not. And when you like go into it, you can figure your way out, and that is just going to like create like two ways of doing things. And then if you end up entering a code and someone is using the APIs instead of like the objects. Mm-hmm. It kind of makes things <laughs> a bit scattered. <laughs> but that could also be animated with just like a style. So it just means that every project has to have like a definite way of doing things. 
I guess the confusion is, I mean, would you agree with us, Nosa and Ben, that now there's two ways of doing something. You can either have this set up, you can create it kind of in these function, functional type way, or you can go back to the, what are we calling that, the, the legacy or the... Uh, object API? Object API, yeah. You can go back to the object API, which you have the ex, um, export default, and then you just have all these different object properties for your computer properties, your data. And I just, there's two ways to do it. And I guess, you know, I've personally, I've talked to a few people. I actually created a, a video on this on my YouTube channel. And I, I literally had like 100 comments and I'd say like 60, uh, 70% of them were negative. People are not liking this. And maybe it's just they haven't gotten used to having two ways to do something. Yeah, and I also think there was a bit of confusion with how it was originally presented. I know the core team is currently working on like an official blog post to really explain the, the rationale behind the function API. But I mean, as far as the current stand, from what I've um, heard from conversations, uh, basically the way to look at this is like the render function. I think most people don't use the render function, but if you actually look at some of the more popular libraries like Beautify, and, and at least I'm pretty sure Beautify does this because I looked at the source code recently, but a lot of the way they generate components is actually programmatic. So they use like render functions and all these things that actually wouldn't be intuitive to someone who's working in a like sort of like what we'll call like a standard view code base. And so I think that's one thing I think people have to realize is that it's not necessarily like a fork from like a, you either do it the object way or the, the function way, the function-based API. It's one of those like additive things where like when your app becomes or like your programming becomes so complex that you need to reach for that, then that's when you have libraries that will basically use that. But it wouldn't necessarily be the first thing you reach for from like a standard app building perspective, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's a good explanation. And I think, yeah, I think overall, I'm pretty positive about it. Maybe probably more positive than NOSA, but a little, little cautious too. I, I like having more options to do things. That's a good point. And I haven't worked on a huge view app. I know there is some pain there. Like, I know if you get view mixins become really yeah. difficult to work with when you get this large app and they're kind of what they, what's the word opaque, like you don't know what's happening in them. Rather than a function where it's like, cool, I can just pop this function in. I can go to the definition real easily, makes sense. It's composable. I can have one function import another function that imports another function. And and I, I'm assuming in like really large view apps, that's really nice to have. And that set of function API can help. Yeah, especially when it comes to like sharing logic. To your point, like mixins are probably a great example of. There are times you just need to touch certain state with certain components, but it, right now it's really messy to do that in a like really clean way. So the function API does help to solve for those problems. But again, I can't stress this enough to people listening, at least as of the time we're recording this, it really needs to be seen as a progressive enhancement, not as like, oh, we're going to start our app with the function API. Like, no, 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 you're still going to start your app normally. (laughs) And then as you need it, you would start to then bring it in, just like you would the render function and all these other component patterns that people may not actually ever have the chance to use because they just don't need it. Good point. Yeah. Does that help to like clear some things up for you, Nosa, as far as your mixed things? <laughs> yeah, 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 it does, um, it does. Yeah, I think it would be a mistake if people took this API and just was like, okay, we're going to write everything function. Like, I think that would be a mistake. From what I've heard, most of the people who like developing large libraries, like Beautify, they will have, they get, they're going to really get to leverage this. But for most of us, I don't think we, we need to reach for it. Certainly for those who are like helping to teach stuff, like Eric, you know, obviously, it'll be, it'll be important for us to understand this and teach it so people know that this is an option for them if they need it. But otherwise, yeah, definitely not your go-to. Um, Are yeah. you going to teach it in your workshop of View Toronto? 
for this one. So I think it really depends on when View 3 comes out. <laughs> um, I think, honestly, though, I think someone did a plugin scaffold for it. Honestly, one of those things, I, I imagine we will start introducing the concept because, so for the, just to give some context for those listening, Damien and I will be teaching a ridiculously reusable components workshop at View Toronto. So yeah, we will probably be covering like at least the high level concepts of this so people can start being exposed to these ideas. Yeah, definitely. Great conference. If you're at the conference, check that out. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of conferences, Nosa, what has your experience been with sort of front-end view conferences so far? It was great. I've actually been to just one um, international conference, and that was ViewConf um, US. Yeah, yeah that's amazing. Really I'm yeah. sad we didn't get a chance to hang out. <laughs> <laughs> but I did see you on the stage, though. Oh my gosh. So you saw the hair. Oh my gosh. You saw all those random skits. <laughs> yep. Oh gosh. I, I've never been to a view conference. You guys got to tell me what happened. What's I've heard this a few times. Everybody's talking about what happened. I'll leave it to you. Nosa. <laughs> it, was, it was fun. Actually, it was fun. So I actually did enjoy it. Even with the jokes. I know like it, sometimes it gets really kind of quiet and a bit boring when it's just all cold stuff and no like jokes and kind of lively moments but yeah it does it was actually fun yeah so yeah for those who aren't familiar with viewconf us uh jen luper and i were the mcs and so eric yeah we were wearing the unicorn onesies and you know i think one of the hard things about being an mc is just you have to fill all this time that's actually unknowable like you don't know how long it takes the speaker to get set up <laughs> you don't know what technical difficulties are going to happen and so it's like this sort of like constant stressor because you have to try to keep the audience entertained <laughs> while everything else is going on. And so, oh, that's really uh, cool. yeah. <laughs> yeah. At one point, I may or may not have pulled a fake British accent to pretend I was Harry Potter and ran around the stage. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I, I got to make the next ViewConf. I got, I got to watch some of these things. It's fun. <laughs> yeah. Definitely a great time. Um, I think they're aiming to do it in New York next year. Don't quote me on that. But I think they're looking into like the Northeast. But yeah, definitely make it out if you totally can. Uh, no, so let me ask you this. Were you, did your company pay for you to go to the conference or did you just flip the bill yourself? Or Oh, the content paid. Oh, that's good. That's nice, yeah. That's uh, awesome. Yeah. Where, where are you based out of? Lagos, Nigeria. Oh, okay, so wow, they flew you all the way from Nigeria to, uh, where was ViewConf, US? Tampa. St. Louis? Yeah, I was in Tampa. Tampa, Florida. Tampa. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it's the international audience at the ViewConf. Was that your first major conference you've ever been to? International, yes. Uh, so was it different than the, the conferences in Nigeria? Definitely different. <laughs> How so? Um, there was food. That's <laughs> uh, so okay. There's also, there's, also, there's also food, but like there's also food in like the conferences in Nigeria. Yeah. Like there was like a full on pre course meal <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> and then like you also get to meet a lot of people that you've known on Twitter for like a while that you follow. So yeah. I will say though, no, so just so you know, not all American conferences have three course meals. It's actually very dependent on the conference organizers and what they're willing to shell out money for. Because some conferences to save money, they'll actually have like attendees go out to lunch on their own. And so just, just so you know that not every, not, uh, every conference has a three-course meal. <laughs> I, I was just at NGConf a few weeks ago and a uh, former panelist on this podcast, Joe Eames, helps run that. And I just, uh, 
amazed at how much food there was like, <laughs> between breaks. There was like just platters and platters of chocolates and sandwiches and candy bars and Coca-Cola. I mean, really unhealthy stuff. And then they also had catered tons of food, like sushi one day, and Whoa. they had breakfast every day and lunch. Yeah, it was just amazing how much food they had. They put a lot of work and money into that conference. And certainly, certainly ViewConf, I sound so similar. Yeah, now that you mentioned it, I think the amount of food at a conference says a lot about how much the organizers care <laughs> about their attendees. Did they have an after party too at ViewConf? Like, did they do like any after yep. events? Did you go to any? How were those? There was Apiawa. Did you do any of the late night parties, Nosa? Yeah, I did see Evan Yu <laughs> karaoke. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, for I don't know if you know this, Eric, but uh, Evan is a karaoke fiend and a pretty solid rapper. Like it's pretty surprising if you've never heard him rap before. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> but and when I go to ViewConf, if Evan's there, there's probably some karaoke event that's going to happen. That's pretty much a guarantee. That's why everybody listening, if you don't go to conferences, you're missing out on quite a bit of fun and connection. And, and probably like Nosa was saying earlier, the, the best part is just meeting cool people. And usually they, you, you kind of have to meet people too, because when you sit and eat, you end up getting sitting tables with other developers and it's half the fun of the conference. Yeah, I, I can't stress that enough. I know some people may be thinking like sometimes, it, yes, conference tickets can be expensive. And obviously, if your company can pay for it, that's really the best path forward. But in addition to just like, oh, like, can you just watch it on YouTube and those sort of things? Like, yes, some conferences record. But really, I don't know what you think, Nosa, but I think the big benefit of conferences is really just that energy you get by being around all these people who are passionate about something that you're passionate as well. And especially with something like ViewConf, you can just, you know, talk to the core team members, like everyone's just there, like for you to hang out with. I don't know. What do you think, Nosa? Yeah, that's, that's actually true. I actually did get to meet a lot of people. Like it got to a point that I was actually exhausted. <laughs> because, like, <laughs> there was, there was so, so many people to like talk to, so many people that um, I've actually never met before. So it was just like great to kind of hear them talk about various things, um, things they've worked on, um, things they are working on rather. And it was actually really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so speaking of, you mentioned that you're um, you know, located in Lagos, Nigeria. Can you tell us actually about the development community there? Because I know there's been a lot of bustle and activity and I think people listening would love to learn more about that. Yep. The community is actually growing. It's growing a lot. Initially, it was just like a small community, but right now it has gone like really big. There's like a conference at almost every weekend. So you get to like meet a lot of people. Oh, you have like a lot of attendees come in. So yeah, it's, it's really great. And now with the um, thanks to um, Prosper and I think Chris, they have like really helped grow the community and a bunch of other people also. So they're even like bringing in like international conferences into nigeria so like yeah yeah that's amazing and i think it's concatenate comp that's like the big one that sarah helps it's helping to like run right yes correct did you go to that one um actually i wasn't there i had like an event that day but yeah it was actually from what i saw online and from people that attended like it was actually a great event there were like a lot of turnouts a whole lot of people came so yeah yeah, that's amazing. Uh, I've heard I've, I've heard nothing but good things about Concatenate. 
And that's a special conference in Nigeria that was tailored a certain way for those, for, uh, for people, I think. Yeah. So the whole idea is bringing the international audience to speak in Nigeria. Um, most of the time, it's actually, not most of it, it's actually very, the cost of you going to like attend like an international conference is very expensive. And um, not a lot of people get a chance to do that. So Concatenate tries to create like a bridge for that. And then they organize a conference in Nigeria where international people could actually speak. So, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, more people that can get in the community, more people that get a voice and you know, share what they're learning and things that they've done is, is great. Is my on my book, I guess in my central, like in the United States view on the world, I don't realize sometimes like, yeah, you know, there's so many great communities out there around the world and not everyone can make it to the U.S. I'm glad these little conferences and big con- bigger conferences too are, are spreading around everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. We'll definitely drop a link in the show notes for Concatenate Conf. If I'm not mistaken, it, I think it's free for all Nigerian develop, developers. Is that right, Nosa? Yeah, it's free. Yeah. So again, that's just one of those things to sort of open up uh, sort of lower barriers and just to have everyone you know, sit at the table together. I think that's a phenomenal thing. So if you want to support them, I think they have... It's not Patreon. What do they use? Um, um, open Collective. Yeah. So there's an Open Collective. And so you know, if you uh, would like to help support them and make the next one another a greater success, like definitely we'll drop a link in the show notes for you to learn more about it. So Nosa, um, you know, obviously being in Lagos, Nigeria, what was your background as far as getting into coding? So coding has always been something that I wanted to do. Actually, come, thinking back now, I actually wanted to be an ethical hacker. So that was, I like saw a lot of hacking movies and then like the coder is just on, on his computer going about 120 words per minute and typing various things and then it tells you that it's inside the system. He has been able to break through and all that. So <laughs> it, that was that was really fascinating for me. So I decided I was going to learn. Um, we always had like growing up, I, there was not like easy access to internet, so we had to find ways around it. So which included going to like cafes and looking for ways around getting internet. So and then it was also expensive, so you have to like have like a lot of money to be able to handle that. So I started learning. Um, I read a bunch of books on hacking and then I learned about the script kid and this other kid and various things. And that also got me into UI development because like you needed to build pages that look exactly like other pages to kind of like find a way to get into it. So I started learning, which required me to learn HTML and CSS. So I started with HTML and CSS and then I would always strive to get like a page as perfectly as possible because like anybody could spot the difference and they shouldn't be able to spot the difference. So all that, so that kind of kept me on my toes. And then somehow I just like got stuck <laughs> in UI development. And that's pretty much how the Akin dream went away. Uh, that's really fascinating. And so, you know, for those that obviously grew up in America, like internet cafes, that's not really a thing. I don't think, Eric, right? That was never really a thing here. Internet cafes? Yeah. They're, they're, they're here. I mean, we have some around in touristy places. They have internet cafes. Not as big as probably some other places. Yeah. Most um, places offers free Wi-Fi. So you go to Starbucks, you can get free Wi-Fi. Right. No, I was thinking more of like the, the barrier at the time to like, I mean, to your point, Nosa, like that you have to pay to go to an internet cafe to like spend time, obviously, either uploading your stuff, um, working on things. I think 
I, I know um, that I had the advantage of like, I think my dad got like a 56K modem. <laughs> and so that was working on dial-up when I first got uh, got started. Ethereum Cafe is actually like a big business, let's say, um, yeah, then. It was really a big business because they were like the only ones that had internet. Like internet wasn't like something that was everywhere. They had like subscriptions, like night plans where you could go. It was cheaper. You could spend like, say, from 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. They just give you as a night plan and then they say that let it together and make it cheaper. So like if you needed to do like a whole lot of stuff, you just go spend the night at the internet cafe. And then wow. because it, <laughs> it was cheaper. So yeah. um, what what I was lucky enough to have like a desktop at home. So what I used to do then was to, you go to the internet cafe, you get what, do all your research you want to do, save all your pages into your flash drive. And then <laughs> you go home, then you go through them. Basically, you're trying to get as much as any as much information as you could get within the yeah. time frame that you bought. So you just keep saving a lot of stuff, and then when you get home, you you, you go through <laughs> most of them. <laughs> you find out like maybe like half of it are not useful for you, and they're like, oh, well. <laughs> so yeah, um, that that was how it was pretty much. Then over the time, um, telecoms also came in. They had like internet, but it was like expensive. And I was in school then, so you don't exactly have like extra pocket money for internet. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I, I was lucky enough to have like a supporting dad that was okay with it, even though he didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> so, That's amazing. <laughs> so he would give me like some extra pocket money for that, and then I'll be at home trying to do stuff. So I was able to. He had this old Nokia phone that he was using before, and then he. It got faulty and somehow I was able to revive it. So I would connect that to um, this Nokia Ensuit application then. And then they had like a dialogue thing in there. And then I just, once the same card is there, you bought in like your airtime, you subscribe to like a data plan and then you plug it in and then you use that. So magically we have internet on the desktop at home with that phone. So then depending on how network is good, the times that I had to like join cables together, like USB cords together to like make them long so you could hang the phone at the particular place that the reception was good. Yeah. So, <laughs> wow. yeah. That was, that was, that's pretty much how I was able to get internet. And then from there, it just got easier and um, started learning a lot of stuff, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, my, my hat's off to you. Like, so much respect to like those hurdles that I, I know that a lot of people, especially growing up in the States, take for granted when it comes to these sort of things. And, you know, just to give the listeners also some context, though, like, like especially back then, like, when you said, like, you know, pocket money for the internet cafes, do you mean, like, would, like, is an hour at the internet cafe, like, a cup of coffee? Like, what was that? Like, can you give people, like, kind of a reference point? Oh, you pay for the time that you're going to be connected on the internet. So um, they have, like, a bunch of systems in the cafe, and it's and it's not an actual cafe. <laughs> we just call it a <laughs> cafe, but it's not an actual cafe. They don't sell coffee or anything there. Yeah. It's just a bunch of systems that you could connect to the internet. They have like a dedicated dialogue or something. They have a setup that gives them internet and you share it across all the systems. And then you pay for, say, if you want to um, use the internet for an hour, they give you, you pay, and then they give you like a code you could enter, you log it in when you go on the system and then your timer starts reading and then you could pause 
and then continue after. You could maybe use maybe 10 or 15 minutes there and then go back. Those um, login details also have like an expiry. So you Got could it. say use an hour for say three days. I could just go use like 10 minutes, do what I want to do quickly, yep. post the time, go, maybe come back the following day, continue using that time. So, yeah. Yeah. And so like for the cost of one hour, was that like the equivalent of like having a meal or like how much was that like cost wise? I would have to do the math. I'd say about a dollar. Yeah. A dollar or two. Yeah. Got it. And so what would that like, because I think when it comes to currency, it can be like, you know, some people might be like, oh, that's not so bad. But like, would a dollar, like, would that actually, like, what would that normally get you like as a kid? Like you're talking about pocket money. Like, would that normally get you like snacks? Like, what would you normally spend that dollar on otherwise? Um, at the time, if you had a dollar, it would get you like a whole lot of stuff. So I think that's part of it. I wanted to contextualize things because, you know, for the listeners to know that like, it's not like this is like you just throw like a penny at it. It's like this, like obviously, like no. you were giving up something, like you were sacrificing something in order to spend time getting this valuable information from the internet. Yeah, yeah. Um, so again, that's uh, um, absolutely phenomenal, <laughs> and my hats off to you for that. And so I think I read this somewhere else, but so did you end up studying like computer science with uh, an undergrad? Yes, I did. So. I didn't quite know what the roadmap was going to be like, but um, my dad knew I had a lot of interest in computers and mm-hmm. we had one. He kind of like just felt it would just make much sense for me to go to computer science. So while I was feeling like my undergrad form and all that, I was like, hey, don't you think that I should just go for computer science? Because like a lot of people then like growing up, when you you're either studying engineering or you're a medical doctor or like you're a lawyer. So computer science was like for the guys that play. <laughs> so <laughs> everybody kind of takes you seriously when you say you're going to learn computer science. Then, oh my so. gosh. <laughs> I, those people probably regret it now. They're like, oh man, <laughs> I should have studied computer science. That was like the department that when you don't and made a cut of math for like engineering you fall oh into oh my gosh <laughs> what so, a mistake <laughs> yeah so yeah he, he was just like I think you should go pursue this and yeah I did yeah, yeah. oh so much respect for your dad and supporting you through all yeah. this that's absolutely fantastic and so I actually, I am curious though, as someone who studied computer science in undergrad do you find that what you studied helped you as like a UI developer not really, but I would say <laughs> I would say it did contribute. It did contribute because like there were a bunch of things that I would say like I picked up and kind of like made the road easy. Like, uh, can you give some examples? In terms of UI development, not so much. Um, mm-hmm. But in terms of like um, things like algorithms and the rest, when you're trying to look for like the best possible, fastest way to implement something. Oh, okay, so you're performance optimizing. Yeah, you're optimizing for speed and all that. Yeah, yeah, it, it did help a lot. Yeah, I think that's that's but, been pretty consistent with people I've talked with too. Yeah, but for UI development, not so much. Because, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you you had to like pay attention to a lot of details when you're doing like UI development, and especially if you're working with like a designer, and then designers like, oh, that button isn't what I designed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Were you playing with HTML and CSS when you used to, you know, before border radius used to exist? I don't know if you remember. You had to like cut four different PNGs and like absolutely position them like on the corner. Oh, no. 
dip. No, no. <laughs> no. Yeah, so no. That's, what, that's what you had to do to make it look like a border radius because that, that property didn't exist in CSS, I think, until CSS3. Um, yeah. <laughs> by the time, by time I picked CSS, CSS3 was available. So. <laughs> okay. Well, you're very, very lucky. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, did, um, I did not have to deal with that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's, that's wonderful. You know, yeah, computer science is one of those things, too, where it's a little controversial, I say, you know, between web developers, because, you know, we all know we can all do our job without CS degrees. But in a lot of other countries, you can't get a job in doing any sort of development without a CS degree. Well, in the United States, it's becoming more and more common that people don't have CS degrees. In fact, I think it's less common for people to have CS degrees. A lot of web development places I've worked at there's like one or two CS degrees and everybody else is either self-taught or a different degree and moved over. And I see the pros and cons of each, but... Yeah, I think a lot of front-end developers, I think their origin story is I was in a band or like my, my band needed a website. Yeah, exactly. Or I came from the MySpace days almost from the older yeah. developers. There are definitely pros and cons of both. I definitely agree with you on that. Yep. So, Nosa, where can people find you on the internet? Um, you can find me on Twitter. Um, I actually have an Instagram account, probably on Snapchat. I don't use it so much. But yeah, you can find me almost everywhere at um, CodePanda, CodePanda, basically. So C-0-D-E-P-A-N-D-A. Yep, so that's CodePanda with a zero for the O. And we'll make sure to drop that in the show notes. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So, Eric, would you like to go first for picks? Sure, yeah. I've been really well interested in I'm a big Stranger Things fan, like probably many people listening to this podcast. It's coming as of this recording. It's, it'll already be out when you're listening to this, but the new season. So I'm looking forward to that, which will be fun. We kind of hinted and talked a little bit about View Art, uh, the View 3. I don't know if anybody knows when it's coming out, but excited to hear about more about that and the RFC, the changes that are happening, which we've kind of already been talking about, which is really cool. And yeah, I think those are my two picks for today. Just looking forward to the future. Awesome. Nosa, what picks do you have for us this week? That would definitely be Black Mirror. Oh, yes. The the, the recent season? <laughs> the recent season was probably just maybe like the first episode that was like really dope. The rest of it a bit. Uh, but like if you've not seen Black Mirror, you should totally see it. Like it's it touches every part about technology, how um, we are like innovating a lot right now and how the world we end up looking like, maybe. <laughs> but it kind, of, it kind of like gives you like the um, the perspective to how technologies could go wrong, even though we're hoping it doesn't go wrong that way. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you see the one with Miley Cyrus in it? No, sir? Um, yeah, I did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the good new season came out, so. Very cool. Yeah, like yeah I, I still need to see that one. I haven't seen that yet. 
Yeah, any other picks besides Black Mirror, Nosa? Right now, I'm also excited about View 3. Let's, <laughs> let's, see how, let's see how it goes. Yes. Let's see how it goes. Yeah. I do, I do feel like a lot of people's code are going to break, but... <laughs> <laughs> Especially with the ViewX part also. Yeah, but they'll be fine. Yeah, it should be good. Okay, well, I guess for me uh, this week, my pick is uh, a book by Elizabeth Gilbert it's called Big Magic, Creative Living Beyond Fear. Um, I think I mentioned this a couple podcasts ago, but I heard like a short excerpt of one of her speeches. And this is a book about, um, again, we deal a lot with imposter syndrome. And so for those that really have issues with sort of like believing in oneself and figuring out how to create in a world where we constantly see people building all these beautiful things, and it's easy to forget about all the hard work that goes underneath it, that these same people we look up to also have their own fears and insecurities. And so Big Magic is a great book for helping you sort of work through that um, own fear so that to realize that you have a lot to offer this world and so and to help build that confidence so you can build something and contribute something unique to the tapestry of our field. And yeah, I think that's it for me <laughs> for Picks This Week. So that's it for this episode of Views on View. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. And until next week, enjoy the view. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more. Mm-hmm.